so I'm a, a fairly avid reader. Um, I, I like to read. Um, and recently, my family has initiated something so that we can get together and, and, uh, and uh, do something productive rather than, you know, just, I don't know what your family does when you get together, veg out in front of the TV, maybe complain about things that are going on. We wanted to have something that would bring peace and harmony to our family as well as togetherness. And so uh, my sister came up with this brilliant idea of a book club. And so we all got to pick our books and every month we get together and supposedly we've read the book before we get together and then we talk about it. And uh, we've been doing this now, and it's, been, it's actually been really good, but we met last week, and when we met last week, uh, we have, we read one book that's part of a trilogy, and I enjoyed it, as did my dad, so much so that we actually went on and read the second book, but that's where my dad and I went in two different directions. As we were talking about it, uh, I'm actually in the midst of the third book now, but my dad didn't like the second book, a direction it took, so he very openly said, yeah, I just, there were, I didn't like that direction it took, so I skimmed over parts, I actually just skipped the parts I didn't like, I just read the parts I did. I was like, you can't do that. He's like, yeah, sure I can. And that, that brings to light, brought to light something for me, that sometimes if you're a reader, the temptation in reading a book can be to skim or skip over certain parts. I won't ask for anyone to confess that um, out here. And, you know, with certain books, maybe that makes sense. Maybe that's not as harmful. But when we talk about the Bible, that can be troubling. Many of us confront this same temptation when it comes to the Bible. We want to skim or skip over sections of it that we don't want to read. And if you're not familiar with this or have never been tempted in this way, why would you want to skim or skip? Well, you know, sometimes there's stuff we come across that we just find boring or uninteresting. Sometimes we skim or we skip because we just don't like what we're reading. We don't care for this part of the Bible, so we, we move on. And in a way, part of why we are utilizing this tool, the story, is because it's a condensed version of the Bible. It's not intended to replace the Bible, but in our efforts to go through the whole of the scriptures, we're using this because what it does is it arranges the scriptures chronologically into 31 chapters. And what it does is it provides paragraphs along the way, these transitional paragraphs that attempt to concisely summarize those parts of the Bible that we otherwise don't read. Now, that's a good thing, and it can be helpful as a way to get through the scriptures, but what really shocked me today as I prepared for my sermon is to realize that even the story itself that tries to be helpful skips an entire book of the Bible. And then if you've been reading chapter 5 and you've gone into chapter 6, you may have noticed this. It skips your favorite book of the Bible and mine, Leviticus. <laughs> I know, it's shocking. And again, we may all go, some of you may have been like, oh, whew, thank you, whoo. But here's the thing. I think for any book, but without question, the Bible, if we're going to fully experience, understand, and appreciate the story, you have to read and reflect on the whole book. When you're selective about what you read in terms of a story, when you choose to skim or just plain skip certain parts, you risk misunderstanding what happens, missing the point of it all, and therefore, more importantly, misrepresenting the story to others. Back to that book club discussion with my dad as we were talking about this trilogy, as I mentioned, uh, things would come up and my dad was like, I didn't see that. And I said, yeah, you didn't see it because you skipped that part. Or I would say, oh man, wasn't this great when this happened? He's like, I didn't make that connection. You didn't make that connection because you skipped that part. When we do that, when we skim or we skip, we miss connections. We miss, can misunderstand things that happen. And, and I want to try to demonstrate the truth of this and encourage us not to do that when it comes to the Bible today. And it, I think it's very 
helpful, and I think it's very relevant, this uh, line of thought, because if we're looking at the second half of the book of Exodus, and even though the, the story skips it, also the whole book of Leviticus. That's right, your favorite book and mine, Leviticus, the story. The Leviticus, story of Leviticus. Now, John last week took us through the first half of Leviticus, and with all due respect, I think he had the easy part. I think he had the easy part. I mean, come on. The first half of Exodus, it is hard not to get engrossed in the Lord's spectacular deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. The way the first half of the book reads, and John did a phenomenal job presenting it, is it's like we have a front row seat. I mean, today's Super Bowl Sunday. It's like we're at the the cosmic Super Bowl, right? We're at front row seats at the head-to-head conflict between the gods of Egypt on one side and the one true God named Yahweh, and we watch it unfold and see it, it is absolutely no contest whatsoever. We're glued to it. It's fascinating. It's exciting. But then, as you go on with Exodus, and John alluded to this as he kind of passed the baton to me, as the people begin their journey through the desert, we begin to lose interest, most of us. We, we start to be tempted to make that cursory read, you know, kind of skim these chapters. Some of us maybe even skip, skip. I mean, and, and I don't want to kind of take you in that and, and why this is typically the mindset. What, what's in there? What's in the second half of, Edic, of Exodus and then in Leviticus? Well, we move from these fireworks and the showdown to no food, no water, to them hiking through the wilderness to a mountain, and for what? So that through all the smoke and the fire, God can hand them a bunch of rules to follow. The big ones to start, 10 big ones to be sure, and then if you were counting, if you kept reading, 50 more instructions. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, really specific stuff about what to do if your bull wounds your neighbor or if your bull wounds your neighbor's bull. You know, this stuff about not cooking your goat in its mother's milk. And then if that's not enough, the Lord then hands the people a bunch of intricate blueprints, right, for building a house filled with furniture, if you will, a religious RV, along with this design pattern for this ornate outfit, this costume for a bunch of priests. And then in the midst of all that, we have the incident. And you probably know about the incident. You can remember this one, right? Moses heads to the top of the mountain for a little combo with the Lord, and he's gone for about six weeks, and then everyone starts to get impatient, right? They're beginning to have their doubts, so the people turn to Aaron. They hand over all their precious jewelry, and then they start going all mad cow, worshiping a golden calf, explaining. They exclaim, this is the God who led us out of Egypt. Two million Israelites, and that's probably a conservative number, two million Israelites are partying like it's 1999, or to be more accurate, like it's 1446 B.C. as Moses comes back down. And Moses sees what's happening and he breaks some things. He grinds the golden calf down into a powder. And in the equivalent of your mom washing your mouth out with soap, he makes every person drink it down this hot, piping hot metallic water. And yet, even though Moses' anger is evident, this cocktail has been drunk by everyone. Some people just keep on partying. And, and you don't know if you caught this, Moses then gathers the Levites, those from the tribe of Levi, and has them go through the camp, and those who are still rebelling are struck down. 3,000 people die by the sword. And in the midst of this, God loses it. First, the Lord threatens to destroy everybody and just start over with Moses. And then the Lord refuses to go forward with the people. I'm done, I'm out. Ultimately, the Lord decides to stick with all of them, but not before he has Moses write down a bunch of process and procedures called the book of Leviticus. 
I mean, the whole book is filled with graphic details of the gathering and preparing of offerings and sacrifices, as well as the proper handling and disposal of guts and grains, fish or fowl, spotless lambs, annual scapegoats, oh my, first fruits, burning fat, pouring out blood, covering sins, dealing with trespasses. It's overwhelming. Don't touch this. How to handle that? Observe this feast, clean or unclean, oil for the lamp. Stop! Why do we need to read all this? Aren't we all saved by grace? Can't we just skip over all these exhaustive rules that no longer apply to our day? Shouldn't we just skim past all those design specifications and measurements, the decor of furniture, the pattern design for clothing and building projects that are no longer relevant to us? Why get bogged down in all that graphic detail and seeming minutia about the blood and guts of animal sacrifices? How is that relevant to our relationship with God? Isn't Jesus all we need? Didn't Christ take care of all that stuff? I mean, seriously, can't we skip all this drama, this frightening picture of God? I mean, let's be honest. Some of us see this God differently. This God seems different, angrier, angrier than the loving Father Jesus is always talking about in the New Testament. This God, if we're really honest, and forgive me for saying so, kind of seems more like Pharaoh. Laying down the law. Here's another building project. Don't provoke my wrath. That's why we skim. That's why some of us just skip. But maybe before we do that, maybe before we skim or we skip or just gloss over this part of the story, maybe we ought to take a second look this morning. Maybe we ought to take a second look because maybe we've missed something along the way. I want to suggest that that's exactly the case. So you can track with what I'm going to do, with what I'm going. There are four things that we see in this latter half of Exodus and the whole of Leviticus. We see the, the commandments that are given. We see a tabernacle that's built. We see the incident with the golden calf. And we see the priesthood and the sacrifices being instituted. And I'm, we're going to go back and look at all four of those things. And we're doing it so that we can recognize that what we might have skimmed or skipped over because it looks uninteresting or irrelevant, all four of those things are actually very insightful for us. And we're going to go back and look at those four things because the God who we perceive in those four moments to be so different from the God we find in the Gospels, what we're going to find out is he's actually the same one. And we're going to also get some clues as to how God continues to unfold his plan for our rescue and our redemption. Now, what sets the tone for us kind of going back over these four things, the commandments, the tabernacle, the incident, and the priesthood and sacrifices, what sets the tone, what we're going to look at to help us get acclimated is Exodus chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, that's what you want to open up to. Exodus chapter 19, it's also going to be on the screen in just a second. We're going to look at Exodus 19, 1 through 8, because this really kind of gives us the lens through which to see everything else. So let me read to you from Exodus chapter 19. It reads, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. 
Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord, the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, as we go back and look at these four things, we start at a mountain. And what happens after three months of traveling through the desert, what happens at this mountain called Sinai, what I want you to see first is this isn't some cold, archaic ritual. We start here, we read these words together, because what we hear is in the midst of all the fire and the smoke, what we hear is not the voice of a king, though God, our Lord, has proven himself to be just that. We do not hear the voice of a king. No, listen listen carefully. Israel listens to the voice of her covenant partner, the one who initiated a promise both to them, a promise to bless and prosper them, and a promise through them to bless all the nations and reclaim his creation. God reminds the people of how he carried them this far on eagles' wings. And then God invites the people to let him carry them forward into the future he's promised for them. I have brought you to myself, the Lord says. I came for you to bring you to me. My friends, we aren't witnessing a legal briefing at the mountaintop here. This is a wedding ceremony. These are the words of a husband wooing his bride, seeking vows of love. Listen to me, the Lord says. Follow me, learn from me, and I will make you into a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God is offering to shape them and equip them to become his representatives to all the other nations, to reveal, to show the world what the Lord is like. What is happening here isn't a religious rite. This is an adoption ceremony. The whole earth is mine, the Lord declares, but out of all the nations, you, you will be my special treasure. These are the words of the God who is our Father, calling us his children and inviting us to bear the family name, to stand apart from the rest, not to taunt the world, but to bless the world, to extend the freedom she has experienced thanks to the Lord. So right from the get-go, the reframe of this is not legalism, but love. A wedding ceremony, an adoption proceeding, and a part of that freedom that God is offering his people that we read in the beginning of 19 is further expanded on. A part of that freedom is extended through God's giving of the Ten Commandments. That's our first relook. The commandments. We often read this part of the story, the commandments as the king laying down the law. But again, I I encourage you to see this differently. This isn't so much the king laying down the law as it is the creator of the universe sharing the DNA of his creation. Revealing the rules for life. God's not being a killjoy here, simply giving us a list of arbitrary do's and don'ts. Our father is revealing to us, his children, the gateway to our freedom. Providing the standards, the boundaries, the ideal conditions for human thriving and flourishing. In a world we can all agree is broken, and I have yet to meet someone who thinks the world's the way it's supposed to be. Everybody recognizes there's something wrong with this world. In a world we can all agree is broken, far from perfect, the Lord gives the keys to experiencing the world the way it's supposed to be. 
the Lord's top 10 aren't prohibitive as much as they are protective, protecting our relationship with God and with each other. And that's why these 10 commandments remain one of the great historical codes by which people still today seek to be guided. These 10 principles for life have remained the basis for our living together for as long as people can remember. Listen, listen to the voice of a father speaking to his children as he lays them out. The first four, as you probably have heard, are vertical. The first four commandments relate to how, relate to how we relate to God. There's only one God, one. There is only one God. Don't be fooled, God is saying. Don't get distracted. Don't be hurt by pretenders, would-be gods. There's only one God. Two, it is wrong to worship idols. Don't confuse the created with the creator. You'll waste a lot of time if you do, and you'll hurt yourself and other people if you worship and idolize stuff rather than the one from whom all blessings flow. Three, Don't overlook the Sabbath, God's gift of rest to you, for you. Keeping the Sabbath holy is about your wholeness, your health and well-being in terms of your relationship with yourself, with others, and with God. Working yourself into the ground is not what you were created for. Four, treat God's name with respect. Don't just throw God's name around recklessly. When you say or do something in the name of the Lord, you are representing God's character. Represent the character of God accurately, positively, and justly, rather than abuse it, and by extension, abuse others. The first four that God lays out for us, these rules for life, relate to how we relate to him. The next six are horizontal in nature and are about how we get along with each other. Five, honor your parents. Family is family. Good or bad, right or wrong, you've only got one. Don't take it. Don't take them for granted. Take care of them. Take care of your family. Six, do not murder. Human life is sacred. Don't look for loopholes to take a life. Look for every possible way to protect and nurture life. Seven, do not commit adultery. Sexual purity matters. Sexual purity reflects fidelity and cultivates intimacy. When you make sex transactional, when you make it something merely physical, when you make sex just about you, someone always gets hurt badly, including you. Do not steal. Eight, don't take what doesn't belong to you. Enough said. Nine, Don't bear false witness. Spreading gossip or rumors, wrongly accusing or talking slanderously about another person promotes mistrust and cultivates a culture of lying. Ten, do not covet. The desire to possess what is not yours, run from it. Say no to it. The desire to possess what is not yours will corrupt and eat you alive. The desire to possess what is not yours will not only corrupt and eat you alive, eventually, if not unchecked, it will threaten your neighbor's well-being and safety too. God's top 10 is rules for life, the DNA of the way things are supposed to be. And if we can't always remember them, or if we get caught up in arguments about questioning their importance, 
Jesus later summarizes these 10 rules in telling us they are all about love. Loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus in that moment not only clarifies for us the spirit of these rules for life, he also solidifies the intention behind these instructions. The standard is love and God's motivation in giving them is love. Out of love for us, this God sets boundaries and directs our paths so we can be free. Free to live safely and securely, harmoniously together without getting hurt or hurting each other. Now, I said we were going to go back and look at these four different scenes, and we've looked at the commandments, but one of the things that might stick out in what I'm just kind of showing you as a sore thumb is that other scene, the incident. If this, everything I'm saying is true, if this is really all about love, God is being loving, then how are we supposed to reconcile, what are we supposed to make of the way God reacts later when all the people go all mad golden cow on him? How are we supposed to Perceive that. And, and the first thing I want you to see in the incident with the golden calf that, again, we can miss if we skim or skip is, first, remember that, again, the lens by which we're looking at that incident. God is the father to his children. God is the would-be lover, husband to his bride, Israel. He's extended a wedding proposal to them. He's invited them into the family with these rules for life, these vows. And you heard it in, in what we read. All the people said, and they say it here, and they'll actually say it again before the golden calf incident happens. So they say it not just once, but twice. We will do everything the Lord has said. In other words, all the people say, I do. Sign me up. We're all in. And then six weeks or 40 days later, they're breaking the first two commandments they just agreed to. Even though the Lord is still in their line of sight. Don't miss that. They're making the golden calf while they can still see the Lord's presence smoldering on the mountaintop. So when we ask ourselves, what do we make of God's reaction? My answer to you is God is heartbroken. Wouldn't you be? Wouldn't you be heartbroken? We have this amazing, startling revelation in Scripture in different places. Jesus wept. God gets jealous. The Spirit grieves. My friends, what we see here isn't surprising because what is told to us, what's revealed to us, is we worship a personal God. And by that I mean we worship a God, worship a God who gets personal with us, who risks loving us, and that means risks getting hurt, betrayed, even crucified by us. And that scene between Moses and God after the golden calf, for many people it's frightening. For me, it's not frightening. It's beautiful and tender because Moses in that moment is being invited to witness that love, to enter into the pain and hurt that come from God choosing to love us. It's a beautiful, tender moment, not a frightening, reactive God, but a steadfast, loving God whose heart has been broken. Now, Again, if I'm in your shoes, the way my brain works, I'm going, well, okay, if that's all true, then what about all that, that when God just starts going off about wiping out everyone and starting over with Moses and then telling Moses he's out and he's not going on with the people? How is that loving? And again, this is why I think it's important that we read carefully, why we don't skip or skim, because I think if you read this carefully, God doesn't seriously intend to do any of this. I think it's clear in the midst of great disappointment and betrayal that is absolutely real, God hurts. I don't think God intends to do any of what he says to Moses. I think what God is doing is he is testing and teaching Moses about his character. 
Think about it. This is why we're here. God, way, way back, made a promise. A promise to rescue and redeem his creation. A promise extended through Abraham and his family. They'll be the conduit to his reclamation of the world. God has made a promise. Will God go back on that promise? Moses, in that moment, knows. He rightly knows that God won't. That God can't. And when I say that God can't go back on that promise, I'm not saying that God can't because his hands are tied. He's like, well, I did sign that covenant contract, so I guess I have to fulfill it. When I say that God can't, Moses understands that's not who God is. That's not how God operates. If God says he is going to do something, God creates by speaking, it's going to happen. And so Moses rightly pushes back and says, you can't. You won't. Because that's not who you are. And then when God says, all right, fine, all right, I won't kill you. But you're on your own, man, I'm out. Moses doesn't take the bait. Moses, again, reflects back that he rightly knows this God when he says, look, these people are helpless. We are helpless. We are hopeless. We are nothing without your presence. He rightly recognizes and he proclaims that apart from God, we can do nothing. We are nothing. He says, God, you have to go. You have to be with us and for us. Because if you're not, it's all over. We're done. And God suddenly says, yes, I'll go with you. Does God change his mind? I don't think so. Now, how do I know I'm not reading into the story? How do you know that I'm not seeing what I want to see? And again, this gets back to reading carefully rather than skipping or skimming. And there's two specific things I want us to see that back up my belief that, again, God is testing and teaching Moses. And here's the first insight. When we watch all this go down, God knows what's happening down there while Moses is up with him. If you read it carefully, it's God who tells Moses, um, you might want to go back down there because uh, there's some bad stuff going on. The Lord's not surprised by all of this. He's absolutely disappointed. I don't want to take away the reality of that, but it's not a shock. God's not blindsided by what the people do. In fact, and this is where I'm going to go next, I would argue he's been preparing for it. And this is the second crucial observation from the story we just can't miss. Because here's the thing. As Aaron and the people are building their idol, at that very same time, the Lord is giving Moses another set of plans. The blueprints for the tabernacle, the place where God will reside with his people. And so as a way of you appreciating this part of the story, let's look at it again. Let's talk about the tabernacle. And again, before we get into this, what I want you to understand is I don't think it's irony or a coincidence that at the very same moment the people are building this idol, God is giving these plans for this tabernacle to Moses. I think it's providence. God knew what was coming. And the Lord already had a plan. And it has to do with this. So let's talk about this. I wanted you to see this to get some visual idea of, of what's described in what amounts to about seven chapters. The tabernacle has an outer court, as you can see, with an altar. And at the center of it, you can also see it had a tent that also had an outer room and an inner room. And that inner room was going to be the hot spot of God's presence. Inside that most holy space, which was known as the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark of the Covenant was to be a visible reminder of God's presence with his people and his power through his people. Now, what we might miss also, and I, you have a little bit of representation on this picture, if we, we might, what we might miss if we skip or skim over the seven chapters of details related to all the trimmings of the construction of the, and of the furniture is their symbolic value. What, what you need to see 
is God, in, the, in having the people build this tabernacle, is creating a reflection of Eden for them. And you may go, that doesn't look much like a garden. And that's not what I mean. What I mean is God is having the people create a reflection of the perfection, the purity, and the wholeness of what once was. And one day, for all nations will be again. I don't know if you caught this because it's God doing it again. Remember where we were in Genesis. Remember how we got here. Remember, out of the chaos and nothingness, God spoke creation into being. You remember that, right? Think about where we've been. Out of Egypt, and what was Egypt? Chaos and death and nothingness. God speaks a new creation into being. He is speaking the foundation of a new creation into being. Long before Jesus teaches us to pray it, the Lord is crafting a little portable piece of life as it is in heaven here on earth. And so as we look at the tabernacle, what we see, looking again, looking more closely, is God never had any intention of destroying everyone and walking away. What the tabernacle shows us is the Lord's plan all along was not to move out or to move on, but to move in, to take up residence with his people, to recapture what was lost what was fractured back in the garden. One of the greatest things that we lost back in Genesis 3 is God's presence with us. And I don't know if you have caught this since Genesis 3 up till now, but up till now, God has showed up to particular people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, right? But this is a decisive shift in chapter 5 of the story where God reveals his plan to be present amongst all his people, to be with us all. So even though the bride was already two-timing with a false god, this god, this bridegroom was still laying the groundwork to carry her over the threshold. Despite the fact that the children were misbehaving, our father was outlining the schematics for more than just another building project, more than a, a pyramid, more than a house, but a home where he could live with his children. My friends, the tabernacle is not something we want to skip or skim over because the tabernacle is the architecture of a dwelling place, a meeting place where God comes down in the midst of his people in order to be, don't miss this, at the center of their lives. This is God's plan, to come and dwell with us and be in the center of our lives. That's why in the first chapter of John, when John talks about Jesus, that passage we read at Christmas time, and you don't catch this because we don't translate it well in English, it literally says, the word came and tabernacled among us. This is pointing to that. This isn't another Pharaoh that we witness here in Exodus a different God from the one we encounter through Jesus in the New Testament. This is the revelation of a loving and gracious Father, the one Jesus speaks of in the Gospels. And this Father doesn't just provide us rules for life, as we've talked about. He doesn't just give us blueprints for his plan to take up residence with us. What we also see is this loving and gracious Father also outlines a system, a means for us to continually get cleaned up and stay on track. We've gone back and we've looked at the commandments. We've looked at the incident. We've looked at the tabernacle. And now finally we take a relook at the priesthood and the sacrifices. You know that boring stuff in, that's in part of Exodus and all of Leviticus that most of us don't want to read. Stop. Because what we see here through the priesthood and the sacrifices and the offerings is something important that we don't want to miss. Our God knows in advance we are not perfect. Perfect. 
We are not yet perfect. Even though he's definitively revealed to us, even though we've promised to follow them, God knows we're going to break these rules for life. We can't keep them. We're going to break them repeatedly. When it comes to these rules for life, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to also ignore and reject them on purpose. Just like this incident with the golden calf, we are going to make a mess. Thanks to our pride, our impatience, our hard hearts, our closed minds, we will break fellowship. At first, we'll be living high on the hog by ourselves, and then we'll be slumming in the pig trough. We're going to step in it. God knows it. We're going to step in it, and we're going to find ourselves covered in filth. We will get dirty. We will get lost and caked in all that guilt and shame. We will struggle to head back in the right direction. And what we see in the priesthood and the sacrifices and the offerings in the, in the latter part of Exodus and in Leviticus, what we see is the Lord planned for the bumps and bruises along the way. The inevitable outcome of being in relationship, of an imperfect people learning and growing and being transformed by a holy and perfect God. Through the intercession of the priesthood and the outlining of sacrifices and offerings, God has created a guide for our reorientation, a means for our restoration, a way to get back home when we as the people mess up and go our own way. In these pages, we tend to skim or skip. God is giving to us, his people, the template for our salvation, the template for our salvation of how he is going to rescue and redeem us. In order to take more, a more closer look at this, I need to back up a second. I need to talk to you about a really poignant moment near the end of the book of Exodus when Moses is once again talking to the Lord. Moses, after demonstrating, as we talked about, through his intercession for the people, as Moses has demonstrated, he truly knows who this God is. He knows God's heart and mind. Moses takes this really courageous step as he boldly asks to behold, to literally see God's glory. Do you remember this? If you remember it, you remember that the best that Moses can get is a look from the backside. And in that moment, and this is what I want to point to, in that moment, as Moses perceives God's glory, as the Lord walks by, the Lord makes this amazing declaration about his character. And it's a statement that's often repeated again in the Bible after that. Because God declares in this moment that he is both merciful and forgiving, but also just and dealing with evil. And this statement that God makes about his character reflects the tension of our relationship with this God. Because here's the thing, how can God be both at the same time? How can God be merciful and forgiving towards us and yet also be just in dealing with this evil we cause because of our sins? And for many of you, maybe you've never noticed this tension because it's human nature to try to avoid it. And what I mean by that is, we all want God to be both, right? We all want God to be merciful and just. We just don't want God to be both at the same time. I mean, we want God to be forgiving when we mess up, right? We want God to be forgiving when we mess up rather than dealing with us as our deeds deserve. Lord, when I screw up, when I mess up, when I fall short, talk to me about forgiveness. I love that word. Mm. Yes, amen. But when someone has wronged us, when someone has done wrong by us, we want God to bring down the hammer. 
We want God to bring down, did you just see what just happened here? Are you going to let this stand? When it's what someone has done unto us, we want God to act justly. I want the just God. I want the judge. I'm not talking about mercy then. We want people to get what's coming to them. And if they don't, that's just not fair. That's just not right. But you see, we want God to be forgiving and just, just not at the same time. We want God to be that way depending on the circumstance. But God can't do that. And when, against again, when I say God can't do that, I'm not saying God goes, well, you see, I'm sort of restricted here. I really can't operate both at the same time. It's got to be one or the other. No, when I say God can't do that, what I mean is that's not who God is. We do not worship a God who looks the other way, acts like nothing happens, and then also deals with what's wrong and judges evil. We worship a perfect, a holy, a consistent God. And so we're back to the tension. How does God do both? How does God deal with what is evil, practice justice without destroying all of us like we deserve? And the answer is initially presented to us through this system of sacrifices and offerings handled by the priesthood. And you know, many of us, we don't read all this because it's gross and it's nasty, and oh, we don't want to. And then, and then, you know, some of us from our sophisticated 21st century viewpoint go, you know, it's really cruel and unfair that an innocent creature like a lamb or a goat should lose its life because a person fails to live up to God's requirement. I don't like reading that part of the Bible. But what you miss, what you're not seeing if you skip or skim, is all these ongoing sacrifices, all this spilled blood, all this need for a scapegoat is a repeated and powerful, visible reminder from God to us as to the price, the cost of our sin. As to the truth of what the Apostle Paul later wrote, the wages of sin are death. If you prefer it another way, actions have consequences. We've been talking about this and we're going to keep talking about it. It comes down to saying yes to God or no to God. And when we say no to God, when we go our own way, either on purpose or by accident, when we say no to God and go our own way, people get hurt. We hurt ourselves. Damage is done. A mess gets made and somebody has to clean it up. Forgiveness and healing that we all crave comes by way of sacrifice, God reveals. Atonement, that word that means a covering of the wrong, making amends, and dealing with the waste disposal. So the priesthood and the offerings and the sacrifices, as I said, we can't just skim or skip past them because God is laying the foundation, the template for our salvation. But when you wade through all of that, and it's tough stuff, it's complex, what you begin to see, why it's so important to make that journey, and where we come out, out of this is that while God provides this as a means of reorientation and restoration, what we see, what we begin to understand is the blood of animals has always been instigated as a stopgap. A temporary fix that as much as a lamb or a goat that's perfect or without blemish can deal with our sins, it's a band-aid. What's still out there, what the bigger problem is beyond the sins that we talk about is the problem of sin. The bigger universally widespread corruption of our humanity. The injustice that results and the separation we experience within ourselves between each other and with this God. 
And we come away and we realize no lamb, no scapegoat, no matter how perfect or innocent, can bridge that gap. No lamb, no scapegoat, no matter how perfect or innocent, no matter how many of them you line up and sacrifice, can deal with all that. No lamb, no scapegoat can until Jesus. You understand? What we read here in Exodus and Leviticus, what we just can't skim or skip over, helps us to later see, to appreciate that Jesus is the wounded victor that gets spoken of in Genesis 3. That Jesus is the Messiah the world has been waiting for. That Jesus is the Savior we all need. Why is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? You can't just simply point to the cross and it's self-obvious when you tell people. They will look at you and say, I don't get it. But when you read through Exodus and Leviticus, when you read through the whole story, by the time you get to the cross, trust me, my friends, you get it. Because what we see when we read the whole story is that Jesus is God come down in the flesh. And Jesus come down as God in the flesh, as the man on the cross. What we see is Jesus is the king who surrenders his crown to bear our sentence. That Jesus is the priest who gives his life to become the sacrifice. That Jesus is the son of the father who deals with all that is wrong in us, all that is wrong in this world in order to make us right with him, with ourselves and with each other. We see that Jesus Christ is the resolution of this tension that we were just talking about. So if today you're looking for something to take with you, some application as it were, How about this? Don't skip and don't skim. Read the whole story. (laughs) Read and recognize, and I hope you heard it this morning as we looked through this, read and recognize you have been invited by a God who really wants to be in relationship with you. We keep throwing that out. God wants to be in a relationship with you, but when you get into the nitty-gritty of this, you understand God really wants to be in a relationship with you. This God has made you a wedding proposal. This God has made you an offer of adoption. And the rules of life that he lays out for you are standards and practices and boundaries born out of love. Not to restrict you, but to set you free. Free to be loved and free to love like this God does. But don't, but again, pay attention, read carefully. The Lord's offer to you isn't contingent upon these rules for life. The Lord's offer to you isn't contingent on your perfect obedience to these rules, this law of love, because this God knows you will stumble and fall. This God knows you aren't perfect and you need help. This God knows, and so in Jesus Christ, the Lord has come down for you to be the truth, to perfectly fulfill this law of love, to show us the way by making his home with you, to living at the center of your life, living at the center of your life even when he is the farthest thing from your heart and mind. This God speaks to you and guide you. And there are so many of us out there who are still not hearing God speak, do not sense God's guidance. But do you understand, we're not talking about the future. We're talking about something that's already happened. This God speaks to us and guides us no longer from a tent or a temple, but from his spirit, his very breath and life inside you. 
his very breath and spirit inside you, working in and through you, even when we repeatedly and heartbreakingly break faith with him. How can this be? How can this possibly be? How can what I've just said, what I say the scriptures proclaim, be possibly true? How can we, this is where you need to sit, how can we, an imperfect, flawed, and broken vessel that we are, possibly bear the glory, the authority, and power of a holy and righteous God? How can this be? Read. Don't skim, don't skip. Hear it again in light of what you read. Listen as if it were the very first time. This can be, this is, because a holy and living sacrifice has been made. You have been made clean. You have been declared righteous. The wrongs of your life, the wrongs of this world have been covered, not by the blood of an animal, but through the life of the Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, your sins and mine. Amen.